Welcome back. Thank you. Um, I hope you enjoyed the lunch break. Um, before we get on with the next session, I would like to flag another, um, another event here at the LSE on the 20... Where is it? David? On the 29th of October, The Long Shadow of War and Remembrance uh, by Professor David Reynolds, who, of course, coined the phrase of the long shadow. Um, and he will be speaking on the legacy of the First World War, in particular the effect of mass bereavement and commemoration. And that's here at uh, the LSE on the 29th of October at 6.30 in the evening. Now, after the American century, I would like to turn to, we would like to turn to uh, the issue of political violence um, that is um, something that I noticed uh, particularly relevant perhaps um, not just in the, in the, uh, with respect to the current political situation in the Middle East and everywhere else, but um, just how uh, poignant that moment of the outbreak of the war is, is perhaps uh, summarized by the fact that if you type in Arch, if you type in Franz Ferdinand to a favorite uh, search engine, you'll get the Archduke rather than the pop band. Now I thought that says something about the relevance of history today. Also, ISIS uh, is actually used, is, is also the longest running uh, 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 magazine uh, for uh, a famous musician, David, uh, so Bob Dylan. And now that used to top the, uh, the, the search results. Now, of course, it's uh, gruesome beheadings in the Middle East. Right, uh, with me are Professor. Gerwart, who is Professor of Modern History at University College in Dublin, where he is also the director of the Centre at the Centre for War Studies. He has published widely about First and Second World War. Um, he is the general editor of the Great War Book Series published by Oxford University Press uh, between now and 2018. And The reason, perhaps, that we invited him to come here uh, is today to talk about political violence is that um, it's a subject that seems to be really very close to his um, academic heart, so much so, in fact, that he became the biographer of one of the most violent and murderous characters of the 20th century, his widely acclaimed uh, biography of Reinhard Heydrich uh, made quite an impact when it was published a couple of years ago. Um, on my right... Um, someone who um, is just as known um, and, and prolific in his output, Professor John Horne from Trinity College in Dublin, where he's also the director of the Center, at the Center of War Studies. And, um, and this is not even where the similarities end between the two, because Robert and John published an acclaimed paper together Vectors and Violence, para paramilitarism, paramilitarism in Europe after the Great War. Now, it's tempting to uh, respond to political violence perhaps with intellectual harmony, but I do hope that the two of you will manage to spark a, an exciting debate. John, please, why don't you kick off? 
Well, thank you very much, uh, John, uh, and also to the LSE for the uh, invitation. It's a real pleasure uh, uh, to be here um, today and to uh, uh, speak, or rather perhaps to debate on this subject, and I shall try to speak for no more than 15 to 20 minutes to allow maximum time for participation from the audience. And when we say debate, I should perhaps um, start off by pointing out that the moment we had two centres for war studies in Dublin, peace immediately broke out uh, between them, and we have collaborated very happily um, in the way that you've uh, uh, suggested. But that doesn't mean that we don't have um, differences in the way we uh, look at things uh, every so often. So I suppose if there is a difference, I don't know if this is the case, Robert, but I sort of see myself as as making a case for uh, the legacy of the Great War in terms of political um, uh, violence rather than um, uh, breaking the war itself into periods and looking, and, and looking at the, the forward projection maybe of the end of the war or the post-war period. Anyway, this may be one of the issues which, which, which comes out. But if our theme this afternoon is uh, political violence and the First World War, we can't talk about that, of course, without talking about violence. And, and wars, by their nature, are violent. And the First World War was, to contemporaries, in an unprecedented fashion, violent, um, because of the scale of the death, the way people died, and the number of people who died, over 10 million soldiers, and we're not even beginning to talk about the civilians, in just over four and a half years. And I suppose the argument is that in political and other terms... The legacy of that kind of violence, that kind of bloodletting, was a very long one. Now, who's actually made this argument? This might be a, a useful point to, to, to set out in starting. Of course, there is George Kennan's uh, famous formulation of it, which I think we have in the, in the, in, in the program of this conference, the, the notion that this was the, the founding disaster, as it were, of the, of the 20th century, the Great War. But Wolfgang Mommsen in Germany um, uh, in the 1970s and the 1980s used the notion of the Urkatastrophe, the, the, the original cat cat catastrophe, which set in chain um, a series of other forms of violence and extremism, including uh, political violence. And, of course, it was the theme uh, at the centre of Eric Hobsbawm's, the late Eric Hobsbawm's uh, book on the age of extremes, the mm -hmm. idea of a short 20th century which begins with this explosive violence of the First World War, but violence of different kinds, um, uh, which then works its way uh, through the 20th century until the closure in 1989. But it's interesting, that date, 1989, because I do think that in many respects, the First World War as a whole, and certainly the theme of violence in the First World War, was masked for a long time by the Second World War. Uh, if there's a shadow of the First World War, there was certainly a shadow of the Second World War, and it had quite profound historiographical implications for the First World War. And it was perhaps only after that turning point of 1989, and I sometimes think, and we can come back to this if you like, in discussion and debate, that we're still taking the measure in historiographical terms, and I just mean by that the way we construct our views of the past, we're still only taking the full measure of how much 1989 was a kind of turning point with the end of the ideological divisions, conflicts, which in a way had started with the First World War, with the reconfiguration of, of, of Europe, with the uh, uh, fall of Marxism as a major ideology, philosophy, dogma, whichever way you want to look at it. These were things which, uh, in the end, uh, uh, reconfigured the way that we considered the early 20th century, including the First World War. Um, and it was as a result, I think, of that uh, re-examination, 
crystallized, perhaps, in some ways, by the, 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 the appalling siege at Sarajevo, the violence in the, the wars of the former Yugoslavia, um, in which at least there was this connection that suddenly Bosnia and the tensions of Bosnia, which had been at the heart of the immediate conflict that led to the Great War between 1908 and 1914, was suddenly there again in the form of this, this extraordinarily violent uh, uh, siege. For that reason and many others, including what happened in Yugoslavia and in Rwanda, the question of the violence of the First World War came back into focus. And uh, if I were to sort of formulate that, I think it's just that a number of historians... Uh, from the 1990s on, have started to reinvestigate the degree of the military violence, of the political violence during and stemming from the war, also violence towards civilians, which was a totally neglected topic. So the centrality of the genocide of the Ottoman Armenians, for example, in 1915, 1916, was in the 1980s a non-subject in historiographical terms. We're now beginning to realize that genocide is at the heart of the First World War as of the uh, Second World War. And I think what it is that we now are beginning to understand about the First World War and about the nature of this violence and therefore the legacy of the violence of the war, of a war which set Europe against each other, which drew in the rest of the world and which, as I say, uh, uh, resulted in, as we now know, 10,100,000 military dead in four and a half years, was that the war set in motion far more than it could possibly um, uh, resolve. Or to put it another way, there was a kind of gulf between whatever it was that had caused the war, and I don't want to minimize the question of the origins of the First World War, and what came out of the war. Uh, There was a kind of gulf between the two, a disproportion of which contemporaries were acutely aware And it was as if, therefore, the First World War, in its own terms, was incapable of resolving the forces which it had unleashed. In that respect, it was a war which, in one form or another, I'll come to that in just a moment, uh, continued. Unfortunately, I was, I, was, I was in the train this morning, so I, I couldn't see, once again, that wonderful film, which I think you all had the opportunity to, to see, La Grande Illusion. But I'd be very interested to, to, to perhaps at coffee, to, 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 to gather your, some of your thoughts on... on how you see that film, because there's one reading of it, of course, in which you can see it as a pacifist film, a denunciation of war. The great illusion is war itself, and this is Jean Renoir um, uh, taking um, the title of Norman Angel's famous um, uh, 1910-1911 book, which was republished in the 1930s. But if you remember at the end, um, when Maréchal and Rosenberg are escaping, they're escaping to neutral Switzerland. And Rosenberg's idea is that they're escaping out of the war. And Maréchal says to him, Mais tu te fais d'illusion? Tu te fais une illusion? You're deluded if you think that you can escape from war. And this is a genre noir. The film is made precisely in 36-37. This is a popular front film. The French left is split down the middle between pacifism, never again, ni vie de krieg, jamais plus cela, uh, we are not going to fight once again um, or have August 1914, and that you have to read the French response to, to the Munich crisis in 1938 through that prism. It's here but for the grace of God, we're back in August 1914 again. Or the only way to stop fascism is to mobilize and fight. War is necessary in order to counteract fascism. And it seems to me that the, the wonderful tensions which, 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 that with which that film is riven and the ambiguities come from precisely that 1936-1937 uh, moment. 
But in either case, the point is that um, I think uh, the war, um, the shadow of the war and the the potential of the next war, the unfinished Great War, the unfinished Great War is absolutely there. So in conceptual terms, how should we try to frame the legacy of the extraordinary violence of the First World War and its unfinished nature? Some historians following George Mosser have used the brutalization thesis, and I think both Robert and I have been rather critical of the brutalization thesis because what that said was, not in the way Mosser himself framed it, he was quite precise about his, the application of the thesis to, to politics in Weimar Germany, but it's been rather blown up into something more general, and the argument is you can't have 70 million men engaging in violence against each other without that brutalizing politics in their home societies after the war. The political violence is somehow a direct consequence Without going into the details, I think one of the sobering reflections on that thesis, and perhaps why it doesn't work, because there are many societies after the war which aren't noticeably more violent than they had been before the war, and also societies had also been politically violent before the war. The assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand is one of the pieces of evidence for that. Um, uh, uh, Is that um, uh, the sobering, the really sobering thought, is that millions of men can go away, can kill and be killed, but provided they are comforted morally and politically in the cause for which they're doing it, Not all of them, certainly, but the large majority of them will come back and be able to lead normal lives afterwards. That's the really sobering um, uh, 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 point. Uh, So it may be that in thinking about brutalization, we have to think also about state collapse and some of the things which were addressed this morning. The emergence of sense of ethnic identity, senses of class conflict, and that it's in those zones, it's in zones where there's the breakdown of the state and the conflict of identities that you will find the violence of the war producing violent politics and brutalization. Other historians have used the notion of the second 30 years war or the European, the 30 years European civil war is another version of that. I myself am deeply unhappy with that formulation though for, for some of the reasons I've just uh, suggested, which is that one of the things to explain in the First World War is how the violence of war is translated back into politics in peacetime and then re-emerges supercharged to the even greater violence of the Second World War. And if one simply imagines it as a kind of flat trajectory of a European civil war, that process of war into politics back into war is somehow lost lost sight of. Um, And it's perhaps, and here's one of the many ententes between our two centres of war studies, that that I think, Robert, you first came up with the phrase, but the notion of the greater war, um, uh, 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 and we've used it in our research, the idea that the First World War is actually really part, it's the epicentre of a a larger cycle of violence which goes from 1911 to 1923. Uh, Indeed, the war doesn't end for many in November 1918, and the degree to which the Allied countries, the former allied countries, always insist on the 11th hour, the 11th day of the 11th month, can be understood as a kind of fetishization which hides exactly the opposite, the fact that the violence in many respects continues. It continues in Germany, it continues in Italy, uh, within the shatter zones, as they've been called, where the pre-war multinational empires disintegrate in Eastern Europe. Um, The violence goes on It does, too, between Greece and Turkey until 1923, and so, too, does it in the backyard of the United Kingdom with Irish independence, a war of independence, and a civil war. And so those are all, perhaps, reasons for suggesting that there's a larger penumbra 
of actual physical military violence of the First World War, and that particularly in the period after um, uh, 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 1718 down to 1923, that it's there that one sees the, as it were, the, the, uh, the linkages, the ways in which that military violence is, in multiple forms, becomes translated into politics and then having supercharged the politics, as I say, is converted back at the end of the 1930s into new forms of war. And in order, just before I go on to talk briefly about what those forms of violence are, one has, I think, to come back once again to the epicenter, which, and and here perhaps there'll be debate between us, which I I do think is utterly crucial. And while it's true that things aren't the same in 1917, 1918 as they are in 1914, as I caught at the end of the Q&A session this morning, nonetheless, the reforms of violence within the war, which are integral to the war, and which help shape that, that, that violence of the greater war and its translation into politics. Of course, it's the question of conscription. But actually, what we're talking about is the uh, construction of the, um, uh, the nation in arms, of a kind of Volkskrieg, and that forging of the nation in a Europe which, let's remember, is in part an imperial Europe before 1914. States are precisely not nations, and many people would have understood that point extremely well um, before 1914. Um, But actually what comes out of the First World War is a Europe of nation-states, and I think one of the reasons is that that mobilizing capacity of the national, of the ethnic, of the cultural the identity politics of creating a nation in arms during the war. I mean, there's a British version of it, too. You know, the, the, it's the first time that the British have conscription, only in the second half of the war. But they're inventing on the hoof what the French have invented in the 1790s. Um, and it has profound consequences for uh, post-war um, Britain in all sorts of ways. And ultimately, of course, the test, when the cost is mass death, Mass death in battle, which is a particular form of battle. I think one has to imagine Europe as a a continent under siege during the First World War. That's the radical... Uh, uh, the radicality of this form of warfare. People imagine this will be offensive warfare, the attack will win out, um, and that um, war will therefore remain a kind of a political instrument. Of course, it's a a gamble. You may lose, you may win, but you can apply war and you will uh, create changes which don't transform the world. That's exactly what doesn't happen. And one reason is that the defensive prevails um, for most of the war. The unlocking of that, uh, David Stevenson here has, has magisterial shown in his, in his book Backs to the Wall in 1918 but for the most of the war most of the war it's the defensive which prevails but the radical innovation is that because siege warfare is as old as warfare itself that traditionally in siege warfare one side defends the other side attacks but in this case each side defends and each side attacks and not just on the western front but on the Italian front the Macedonian front the eastern front Europe, in fact, is a continent under mutual siege in which each side is both attacking and defending. And since one of the arms of siege warfare back to the medieval period or earlier, the alternative to the attack, to try and take the defended position, is to starve them out. Well, the starving them out is the naval blockade, and it transfers that aspect of the siege to the global economy. So we're talking about very profound dynamics of violence at the heart of the Great War itself. And if I had to formulate it, which I do in 30 seconds, I would simply choose to put it this way, that at the end of the 18th century, the really operational, the really important category is revolution, whether it's the American Revolution or the French Revolution, 
Everything else is redefined in terms of that, including war. And the point about Clausewitz, the great German theorist of war, is that in 1832 he's taking the full measure of that transformation of war in the light of the French Revolution, people's war, and so on. 1418 is the exact opposite. War defines, and I would say for the first half of the 20th century, it's war which defines, redefines everything else, including revolution. The Russian Revolution, particularly the November Revolution, the Chinese Revolution of 1949, are unthinkable without the two world wars. In fact, maybe we could force the argument and say that it's war, um, the kind of total wars of the two world wars, which are the real revolution in the 20th century, uh, which transform so much else. Well, let's now just briefly look at uh, the way in which the legacy of that wartime violence might play out both in Europe and the wider world in the years just after the war, with consequences, I think, which are still there, directly or indirectly, down to our own day. From 1917 on, within the war um, itself, um, uh, the war, as it were, metamorphoses in the case of Russia, into revolution, and then very quickly by 1918 into civil war, and by 1919 into a civil war and an interventionist war in which we have a new form of war with uh, uh, possibly as many... It's still very hard to know the death toll for the Russian civil war, but with the Allied powers intervening and with a death toll which is certainly close to that of the Great War, if not surpassing it. Uh, within that, of course, there is the use of terror by the Bolsheviks. There's the use of paramilitary violence as well as formal military violence by um, uh, the opposition, by the whites. Um, and in that sense, there is also a kind of an ideological, an ideological transformation, uh, 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 transfiguration of the violence of the First World War now into class terms. On, in the terms of the Bolsheviks, uh, now the use of military and paramilitary at, uh, violence and indeed the terror of the Chica, which is first uh, uh, used in 1918-1919, uh, uh, is a form of warfare in um, a, a revolutionary context. And indeed, one could take just one step further and say that, uh, open to correction by specialists in Russian history, perhaps here present, but it seems to me that the forms of warfare experienced by the Bolsheviks in 1919 and 1920, war communism and so on, and the role that the party plays during the war in restructuring the state actually shapes um, the Soviet Union for the future. It's in that sense, that with the further transformation of Stalin in the 1930s, that that particular revolutionary violence of the First World War produces a command economy and produces a form of militarized politics which uh, turn out to be very adequate indeed to standing up to the German threat in the Second World War. I'll be very brief and say that, of course, this also creates a wave of counter-revolutionary violence, particularly in Central Europe and Italy, about which Robert may have more to say than, than, than I will. But the, the uh, uh, And this is something that he in particular has worked on, the work of the Freikorps, um, uh, so a kind of counter-revolutionary, fed by a kind of myth, mythologized imagery of Bolshevik violence, um, seems to license violence in certain parts of uh, Central uh, Europe. Um, it remains much more contained in Britain and France. Alongside, one has, of course, with the collapse of the multinational empires. We have the forging through war and violence, including terror and paramilitary violence across uh, Eastern Europe, what we were talking about before, uh, before lunch. That's to say, the Allies, under Woodrow Wilson, 
are uh, 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 legislating, as it were, for a new Europe on the basis of self-determination, national self-determination, in the hope that that will somehow coincide with ethnic entities. They're doing that, as it were, from the, uh, 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 from, from, from the heights in Paris. Meanwhile, there is violence on the ground. There is interstate war between the new Poland and Russia. There is civil war between Poland, Ukraine, Poland and Lithuania in which each are redefining their borders and trying to make territories and borders fit peoples. If you go to Warsaw and look at the tomb of the unknown soldier in Warsaw, you'll find it doesn't come from the Great War, though 300,000 Poles died in three different armies in the Great War. It comes from Lviv in May 1919, the battle between the Ukrainians and the, uh, and, 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 and the Poles over the um, uh, border. And, of course, there was the terrible violence of the war between um, Greece and Turkey in 1922-1923, out of which comes the independent Turkish Republic, uh, and this being one in which we see all the types of violence that I've referred to, in particular ethnic violence expressed in paramilitary form, formal military violence between armies, and uh, 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 so on. Uh, and, and, of course, with continued depredations against um, uh, uh, civilians. And I won't go into the Irish uh, case here, but I think what I want to suggest, what I want to suggest is that on the ground, in terms of the actual violence of the First World War, when we talk about the political settlement of the 1920s, we have to understand that in parts of Europe, this is one which is signed into reality by blood and by violence, and by a proliferation of violence, I think on a scale not seen before. It's not that all of those kinds of violence are absolutely new if we look at the late 19th century, terror, assassinations, but, but paramilitary violence on a scale that hasn't been seen in the second half of the 19th century. We're seeing these new nations being forged in blood, and that maybe is one of the explanations of the power of the identity politics, the hostility to the minorities that we were talking about um, uh, before lunch. Meanwhile, and this is the, 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 the second and the last consequence that I'll draw from the, uh, from the First World War, what happens if we take Erez Manela's lead and look in his, in his book, The Wilsonian Moment, and if we look beyond Europe and, and we ask the same questions about violence? There it's deeply interesting because, of course, the socialists and Marxists, going back to, the, to 1914 itself, said, actually, this is an imperialist war. This is all about capitalism and colonialism. And historians have rather lost sight of that, that particular narrative. But it seems to me what, what is the case is that colonies were at best an accessory in terms of the causes of the war, and that European powers proved as adept at arranging things between themselves as engaging in conflict over colonial issues. Once the war broke out, there was a colonial, let's call it a colonial penumbra to the war, which whose violence was centred on Europe. There was real fighting within that penumbra, Mesopotamia, East Africa in particular. But basically, it seems to me a very traditional story. And indeed, what lay at the heart of it was what one might be tempted to call the last great carve-up, the last great colonial carve-up, because the last part of the globe left to carve up by European powers were the Middle Eastern provinces of the Ottoman Empire. And that is exactly what the British and the French did in 1919-1920 at the peace conference, creating the basis of the Middle East as we know it uh, today. At the same time, however, as Erez Manela has reminded us, all of that concern with nations, boundaries, and peoples, which was, of course, powerfully there in Europe, had, of course, engaged the attention of the colonial national elites, and they all tried to beat a path to Paris in 1919. Ho Chi Minh, famously working as a waiter in Paris, borrows a dinner suit in order to try to uh, get an audience with uh, Woodrow Wilson. He fails. 
The point is that across the colonial world, the question was, why should not these same ideas be applied to us? And there is no intention on the part of Woodrow Wilson, a good southern uh, a Democrat, a liberal, who understood the importance of uh, uh, racial distinctions. There was no intention at all of doing that. But the seeds of decolonization, one might argue, were, uh, were, were, were sown or were at any rate began to flourish at that point, although it would take, and, and there were very violent responses to this non-recognition in 1919, the revolt in Egypt, the Amritsar massacre in India, for example. Um, and in that sense, we could argue that the, the political violence of the uh, First World War also had this long burning fuse uh, which connects it to the wars of decolonization, the process of decolonization after the uh, Second World uh, uh, War. Well, very, very briefly, if we look at it from the perspective of the present, which I believe is one of our objectives today, we could argue that, um, at least across the Middle East at the moment, we're seeing, or are we? I don't know, but for me it's a kind of question. Are we seeing the final collapse of that double legacy of the First World War? That's to say, the last great colonial carve-up which didn't concern Ottoman Turkey, that actually fitted into the European pattern. There you had the creation of a European-style uh, republic um, insisting on its ethnic purity uh, after 1923. But the colonial provinces, Mesopotamia, um, uh, uh, current, obviously, um, uh, Iraq, um, uh, uh, Syria, uh, the Lebanon, and so on, those were carved up, and arguably they were carved up, as so often had happened earlier in Africa, into uh, 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 um, areas which uh, had very little kind of immediate logic to them, uh, out of which then second legacy, when finally the nation-state revolution, that springtime of the people that we were talking about earlier, the vision of 1848, which finally is, is fulfilled in um, uh, uh, Eastern Europe after the First World War, is then transferred after the Second World War to the colonial world, and perhaps that's also beginning to break up now. At least that's one of the, uh, the, the possibilities in the um, uh, Middle East. Meanwhile, as far as Europe is concerned, we know that it was a poison chalice in many respects because of the questions of rights and sovereignty that were evoked this morning. And I don't have to remind people that there the slow-burning fuse was the ethnic violence and that terrible reconfiguration of Central Europe, forcing boundaries to fit peoples, shifting shifting peoples to make sense of boundaries, which is what happened across the Nazi project after 1938, but also in the post-Second World War period. And perhaps in a post-1989 Europe, we now have a different understanding, something which comes is more informed at least by international human rights as the check on national sovereignty. But there, and this is my final point, I would just, and parche the discussion that I heard before lunch, I would just want to point to the importance of out of the First World War, which you could argue in ideological terms, it, it creates communism and fascism and also new definitions of democracy. They're not indirect products. They're things which are forged in the crucible of the First World War. And on the democratic front, the League of Nations, the idea of an international passport, the Nansen passport, the idea that veterans had rights which were international, did not inhere in particular states which were, which were international, suggests that although we know the project was failed, the League of Nations, but there were international dimensions to it which were then picked up after the Second World War so that um, we see, for example, the work done to try and create an international juridical status for war veterans after the First World War is one of the currents that feeds into the UN Charter of Human Rights after the Second World War. 
So it's a multiple um, legacy, but as I hope I've shown, I think this, this greater war, which goes from 1911 to 1923, and the translation of the military violence into political forms, which are then transferred back into military violence at the end of the 1930s, leaves a legacy which, oddly enough, often as much directly as indirectly, is that, at least viewed from post-1989, of our world today. Thank you. Thank you, John. Um, yeah, let me quickly uh, add my uh, heartfelt thanks to the organisers, both here at LSE, uh, but also um, the site, uh, who very kindly included me in this programme. Um, I'm particularly delighted uh, to be able to explore and discuss with my uh, friend and colleague, John Horn, uh, the place of the First World War in the violent history of the 20th century. And I think this is uh, an important and quite refreshing uh, debate to be had, because much of the public debate uh, during the current centenary uh, has been slightly disappointing, in my personal view. Uh, It has focused very much on the origins of the First World War, but has suffered, uh, at least from my perspective, uh, from being extremely politicized and there being a discrepancy between the scholarship, which is uh, very interesting, and the public perception of this scholarship. In Germany, for example, the uh, publication of Christopher Clarke's Sleepwalkers has prompted a kind of repeat of the Fisher debate of the 1960s in an almost uh, staged way. And as in the Fisher debate of the 60s, uh, the public debate was never really about the origins of the First World War, but the question whether there was a line of continuity between Germany's political ambitions in 1914 and in 1939. Uh, On this island, the debate has been focused on whether it was right or wrong uh, that Britain joined a continental war, Uh, Neil Ferguson's argument that London should have stayed out of the conflict uh, leading to a German victory uh, and something similar to today's EU without British participation, of course, tells us a great deal more about the wishful thinking of conservative Eurosceptics than it does about the origins of the First World War. (coughs) Moving the focus away from the politicised debate about the origins uh, to a more balanced discussion of its legacies is both important and timely and will probably accompany us for the rest of the centenary until, depending on whether you see the war ending in 1918 or 1923, for many years to come. I would agree that few of the conflicts that have haunted the long 20th century, from World War II to the Cold War, and more recently from Yugoslavia to Ukraine and the Middle East, can be properly understood without going back in time to the period of the First World War, broadly defined and its outcomes. Before reflecting on the legacies of the First World War, it might be a good starting point to ask which war we're actually talking about. 1914 to 1918, the Western Front. I would contend that there is no such thing as the Great War, uh, but a multitude of conflicts that overlapped and mutually reinforced each other. And that in thinking about the relationship between World War I and the violent 20th century, we may have focused on the wrong war. Instead, I would argue that we should take a broader perspective that contextualizes the industrial, uh, industrialized total war uh, between 1914-1918, and we all have these images of the Western Front in our heads, um, and that we should contextualize it not only spatially by including other parts of the world, 
uh, but also chronologically. As John has suggested, uh, there is good reason uh, to start to think about the unraveling of the great power system in 1911 with the Italian invasion of today's Libya and the Dodecanese Islands, and to end our perspective in 1923 uh, with the Treaty of Lausanne, uh, which for the first time uh, sanctioned through international law uh, the forced expulsion of uh, more than one million uh, Greeks and Turks from their respective homelands. Such a perspective will allow us to see the Great War as closely interconnected with, but also distinct from, other forms of violence such as terrorism, paramilitarism, or ethnic cleansing, uh, which often overlap and reinforce each other. But all of these forms of violence did, of course, exist before the Great War, in the anarchist tradition of the propaganda by deed, in the Balkan paramilitary formations that had fought the Ottomans uh, long before 1914, and in the ethnic cleansing of Balkan Muslims during the wars of 1912 to 1913. So did it really take the First World War to reinforce it, or did the First World War simply uh, speed up a process that was already in train? In Russia, we have a revolution in 1905, uh, which fails. Um, but I think uh, the, the big question, the hypothetical question, uh, might be whether uh, we can only see the First World War as the context in which another revolution in Russia was likely. So if these forms of violence that would become dominant over the course of the 20th uh, century uh, predated 1914, why should we uh, consider the First World War as the beginning uh, of new and different forms of uh, violence and also of a different logic of violence? The answer to that question lies, in my view, uh, not in the trenches of the Western Front. Uh, the First World War did initiate a new era of violence. Um, but what, what set it apart from other conflicts, uh, in, except, of course, intensity and modern technology being used, um, came relatively uh, late in that conflict. And I see a kind of uh, tectonic shift in 1916-17, uh, which uh, very much transforms the conflict in a number of ways, uh, certainly the key moment, uh, I think, in terms of understanding the violence that uh, haunted Europe and the rest of the world uh, for much of the 20th century, uh, two uh, factors are crucial. First, the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, which I think in many ways explains much more about the violence that follows uh, 1918 uh, than the fighting on the Western Front. And following the withdrawal of Russia from the conflict and the defeat of the Central Powers, the disintegration of the multi-ethnic empires. Now, of course, neither of the two are really thinkable at this moment in time without the First World War, uh, but they may have occurred at another uh, occasion. And even in the multi-ethnic empires, very, very few people, very few nationalists, uh, think about creating nation-states before 1917. This is really something uh, that comes relatively late in the game. Most people think about transforming the empires into uh, sorts of uh, federations, confederations of states, but within an imperial superstructure. The disappearance from the map of these multi-ethnic empires uh, provided the space now for the emergence of new, often highly ideologized, and often very... Um, aggressive nationalist projects um, which, uh, were, well, which, which were attempted to be implemented by paramilitary forces because the national armies or imperial armies had collapsed and now you have rival uh, factions that seek to become the new national armies uh, but are not in that position yet. 
So in the immediate aftermath of the First World War, which I would highlight as a very important uh, period uh, for understanding the violent trajectories of the 20th century, so between 1918 or 1917 and 1923, um, even if the uh, estimates are difficult, I think a conservative estimate would be that at least 4 million people died, and that's more than the combined wartime casualties of Britain, France, and the United States uh, during the First World War. So how do we explain this proliferation of violence and of types of violence uh, that appear to foreshadow what we actually see on the Eastern Front in the Second World War? Uh, For more than two decades, it was a a commonplace in uh, European history or historiography to speak of the brutalization of the men who had fought or served in the First World War. The violence of the Great War seemed to give uh, many veterans a kind of lust uh, for blood and conflict, and uh, John has already uh, mentioned George Mosser and his very influential brutalization thesis before. Uh, you're absolutely right that his argument was very much confined to uh, the German case and that it was subsequently extended to explain political violence all over Europe, not by Mosser himself, but by others like Enzo Traverso and various other people. So Mosser may have been more precise, but I think he was still wrong. Um, because we now have very, very good empirical studies on the veterans of the First World War, uh, which demonstrate very clearly that the overwhelming majority, uh, the overwhelming majority leave the trenches, and the lesson that they draw from the conflict is that they never want a war again. So if we want to understand the people who um, drive the political agenda in the Second World War, they are mainly people who had been too young to fight in the First World War, the so-called war youth uh, generation that had been mobilized by the conflict, but never actually Uh, saw action, and we have similar uh, studies for other uh, combatants. So instead, I think, instead of looking at the trenches as the origin of political violence in the 20th century, uh, we should certainly look at these two factors, which I mentioned uh, briefly earlier on, um, uh, as game changers in the history of political violence in the 20th century, uh, which is, of course, the Russian Revolution, whose shadows uh, linger over the 20th century. Um, The revolution of 1917 and the subsequent civil war in Russia that then extends to other territories in Europe um, certainly occupy a very special place in the history of political violence, both in Russia and in the rest of Europe. Um, The Great War, again, had provided the space in which a a revolution, unlike in 1905, uh, could actually be successful, or rather a putsch, uh, as was the case and and when the Bolsheviks took uh, power. But it really was the the revolution and the civil war that led to an internalization and uh, universalization of violence. Um, Although this violence was uh, indiscriminate, uh, it is uh, interesting to see that Jews were targeted particularly often uh, and throughout the uh, former Romanov lands. Uh, So what you have here is the perception that uh, the Bolshevik Revolution is driven by Jewish agents, and essentially, uh, not only in Russia, but everywhere uh, in Europe, 1917 is equated with a Jewish conspiracy, one of the most powerful elements of 20th century conspiracy theories of the right um, for the subsequent decades. Uh, Obviously, it didn't take very long before this notion of the Jews as the main beneficiaries and driving forces behind Bolshevism uh, spread beyond the Russian borders. Um, The fact that a relatively high number of Jews played prominent roles in the subsequent Central European uh, revolutions of 1918-19 
Rosa Luxemburg in Berlin, Kurt, Eichner, äh, Kurt Eisner in Munich, Bela Kuhn in Hungary, Victor Adler in Vienna, uh, seemed to make such accusations plausible in the eyes of a receptive audience, uh, even for observers in Britain and France. So secular anti-Semitism and anti-Bolshevism, as well as Bolshevism itself, uh, quickly interacted with revolutionary and counter-revolutionary uh, movements across Europe. For the uh, strained working classes, it was a kind of beacon uh, of hope, what had, hap what had happened uh, in Russia in 1917. Uh, for others, it was the ultimate nightmare that had finally occurred, a repeat of 1789 that mobilized the conservative uh, establishment against uh, this threat, much more, in fact, uh, than the experience of the First World War. The second uh, key factor that has long-term implications for the history of political violence in the 20th century uh, is certainly the collapse of empires in and around 1918 and the subsequent mass proliferation of inter-ethnic violence. Now, inter-ethnic violence is not something new at this point, but you certainly see a massive increase of inter-ethnic violence and, in some ways, through the Lausanne uh, Treaty, a justification of forced population exchanges, which sets a precedent for what happens in the aftermath of the Second World War. So if the Bolshevik Revolution and the subsequent civil war had spread fears over uh, a European class war that was imminent, about to break out, and uh, certainly the defeat of the central powers also had uh, undermined the legitimacy and viability of Europe's uh, land empires, the idea of creating ethnically homogenous nation-states uh, proved, I think, one of the most important sources of post-war violence in much of Europe at the end of the Great War. And this was especially the case where rival ethnic groups had uh, rival claims to certain territories. So I think this was perhaps the most important legacy of the immediate post-war period if we want to explain future trajectories of violence, this perceived need that you have to cleanse your own community uh, of certain alien elements um, before a utopian new society could emerge. And here perhaps I would uh, disagree with John because you talked about the centrality of genocide to both the First and the Second World War. Um, I find it a little bit more difficult to compare the Armenian genocide with the, um, with the Holocaust, not because you know, the result is fundamentally different, but for the Nazi project... Uh, the eradication of Jews is so central that I think it has no counterpart in Ottoman thinking, which is very much driven, of course, by concerns about security, whereas the Jews in Europe never posed a threat, a uh, security threat to the Nazis. This was merely used as, um, as jargon, you know, labeling them as, as uh, partisans in the Second World War had a very, very different function from uh, the killing on and resettlement of Christians in the Ottoman Empire. So in some ways, the, this idea that you have to cleanse a community of the internal enemies was uh, both the ultimate objective of movements of the left and the right. And it this is really what um, uh, I think provides a very important key for understanding uh, the cycles of violence that characterized so many uh, violent upheavals in Europe, uh, certainly in the three decades after 1917, uh, certainly until the moment when the ethnic question uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War is resolved through the mass expulsion of uh, Germans from Central Europe. So during this period, during these uh, decades, and notably during the Second World War, violent actors followed a logic born in the immediate aftermath of the Great War. The aim 
here was no longer to militarily defeat an opposing army and to impose uh, the conditions of peace, however harsh they may have been, which was the logic of the First World War. Even the craziest people in uh, the German military high command never proposed to completely annihilate uh, France and its population. Uh, so you have a very different logic here, I think, at work uh, during the Second World War and notably on, on the Eastern Front. So while this is in some ways, at least in the early phase, the last classic war, traditional war uh, in many ways, much more brutal, of course, um, in the final phase of the war and then in the early um, aftermath of the First World War, you see a transformation of objectives, of the logic of violence, and also of the realities of, the, of, the, um, of violence that actually foreshadow uh, events of subsequent decades. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Thank you very much. Careful. <laughs> Overly enthusiastic. <laughs> well, let's go straight to the floor. Questions, please. <clears throat> I think we started with you this morning. Why don't you kick us off now? Can you please introduce yourself and um, maybe stand up if you like, because uh, we're being filmed. So, uh, I'm, uh, my name's Leon. Okay. And uh, thank you for the talk. Um, you identified that the empires were at war with each other during your talk. Um, does that not mean that World War Two, uh, sorry, World War One, and therefore World War Two, are religious wars because of that significant detail? So we collect a few questions, perhaps, and then you, sir. Third row. Bernard Casey again. I want to come back to this notion of ethnic violence. I think my understanding of even the period before the First World War and the reasons behind the attitude of both the German Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire was very much one of ethnic superiority of the supposed sort of Western Christians as opposed to the Eastern Christians and the uh, sort of Aryans or whatever as opposed to the Slavs. It's, very, it's all well and good to say, yes, the intention was not actually to wipe, from Germany's point of view, was not to wipe France off the face of the earth, but France was kind of just a little diversion which was supposed to get sorted out in order that when the serious business of dealing with the East and these wretched Slavs, these Untermensch, uh, could be got on with in a serious fashion by both the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians. Okay, thank you. Do you want to take those two yeah, questions sure. in turn? Um, thank you, very interesting questions. I mean, I, I, uh, I would agree. I, I, I see the First World War as a, a war of empires more than a, a war of nation-states, actually. Um, but I think there's a, a fundamental difference between the First and the, the Second World War, namely that uh, the First World War is a, a war between older empires, whereas... In the Second World War, you have the surviving old empires, the Blue Water Empires Britain, of Britain and France, clashing with new imperial projects. Um, on the one hand, the Nazi imperial project to build a 
sort of living space of colonies in, in Eastern Europe, and on the other hand, the Stalinist project of essentially recreating a Tsarist, uh, certainly an empire, a communist empire within um, at least the former Tsarist's borders, the Tsarist empire's borders. Um, is it a religious uh, conflict? Certainly the, the, kind of the language uh, of the combatants often is very religious, and in the Second World War, uh, with the modern ideologies, I think here the idea of having secular religions as driving forces is a, is a very persuasive one. Um, I do buy into that uh, idea. Um, in terms of cultural superiority in the First, and, uh, in the first World War, I think... Um, I think they're not really thinking in terms of ethnic superiority, which would be a very dangerous thought, uh, certainly in the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, which uh, contains a majority of Slavs. Um, well, but, the, but there are lots of people before, in the lead-up to 1914. I mean, what we have to bear in mind is that both the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the uh, Ottoman Empire have long been portrayed as... Anachronistic uh, systems, where really they're both reforming empires before the First World War, and like any empire, they become particularly uh, susceptible to uh, internal collapse at the moment of reform. Um, so what you have, you have certainly internal debates before the Young Turks come to power um, in the Ottoman Empire of creating uh, greater autonomy for the Christian and Arabic populations. In uh, you know. Some people suggest that Franz Ferdinand and uh, his inner circle are thinking about granting something similar to the Ausgleich of 1866, at least to the Croatian uh, population, which would drive a wedge through the Slavic populations of the, of the uh, empire. I think one should also be very careful not to conflate the First and the Second World War. Um, I don't think that the Germans are thinking... They're thinking in terms of cultural superiority, but not ethnic superiority. Uh, the imperial Germany is not Nazi Germany, and I think that's a very important difference, um, uh, both in terms of war aims, but also in terms of what is driving uh, these, these different projects. Yeah, well, if I can just respond briefly to, 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 to both of those questions. I, I'm picking up Robert's um, uh, last point first. I, I, would, I, I would absolutely agree, and I think there are... There, there are you know, real difficulties, real dangers in drawing close and direct lines between the First and the Second World Wars. And that's why I kind of insisted in, 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 in my discussion on the way in which the violence of, of, of war, indeed of the Greater War down to 1923, is then translated back into very complex political situations, including the attempt to create the, the Weimar Republic, which, and it's the politics and the ideology which become, it seems to me, the great accelerator, and which then translated back into military terms, do produce a Second World War, which is, which is very very different in many, in many respects, and I didn't for one minute mean to say that in, in, in any sense that the, the terrible genocide of the uh, 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 Armenian, the Ottoman Armenians is, is, is the same in nature and character as that of the, the Nazi genocide of Europe's Jews, but simply that something which many historians now agree was genocide of different kinds was at the heart of both world wars, and indeed very early on in the First World War. And that brings me to the question of, of religion. I mean, uh, it, yes, I think that religion, of course, as such, is present. The confessional aspect is there in the, in, in, in the First World War. But even more important than that, I think, is the secularized religion of, of nationality, and indeed often nationality re-read as, as some, in some sense as ethnicity. And this, I think, Robert, is the, the slight difficulty. Well, again, it's the disagreement between, between us, and I think, I think a fruitful one, but uh, the, the idea that... Uh, I know, but we have to... <laughs> 
The idea that there's somehow there's this old First World War, which is a classic war down to 1917, and then that's the real turning point. I just don't buy it in many ways, because it seems to me one of the things which strikes contemporaries is the violence of the war in political and ideological, as well as in military terms, immediately. Let me just illustrate that with two brief examples. The highest death rates in the First World War come in the autumn of 1914. Those are the highest death rates because a war of movement, a traditional Napoleonic war with modern industrial <clears throat> means is utterly lethal. And it's not the case of the British because they don't really get going until the Somme in 1916, but, the, but, but there are 400,000 Frenchmen are dead by uh, the new year in, in, in 1914, and things are not dissimilar for the, um, uh, for the Germans. But also in terms of the political mobilization, um, the tendency immediately, and Freud has a wonderful essay in 1915 where he's just astounded by the capacity of what he calls the great white nations to simply traduce each other as utter and absolute enemies in quasi-religious terms. Um, and this is there at, right, right from the very beginning. And uh, uh, in this sense, I think, I mean, you're quite right, you know, that, of course, the eth ethnic violence precedes the First World War, but there's a gradual stepping up, um, and it particularly emerges in the First and Second Balkan Wars, and there's an extraordinary report by the Carnegie Endowment, which goes in to investigate atrocities against civilians in the war, and in June 1914, it publishes a report and said, this was the worst kind of war. This was a war between races and peoples in which there was no distinction made at the end between civilians and, and, and soldiers. And, of course, the great irony is that we see similar kinds of things happening within four months, five months um, in, in, in Europe. And I would just add to that that I think it, it's slightly forcing the argument when you say, you know, you're, you're this, this older classic war and you, and you refer to the trenches in the Western Front. The whole point is the trenches weren't just on the Western Front. And why I tried to reformulate it as a war of siege was to suggest that this incapacity for the offensive to win meant that right from the start, it's not it's it, it's in Austria, it's it, it's in Aust on the Austro-Italian frontier, it's in Macedonia, it's on the Eastern Front, precisely on the Eastern Front, and it's that terrible military bloodletting and the experience of the soldiers and the fact that to try and and break the enemy siege, you have to mobilise everything, ethnic categories, the economy. <coughs> political ideology, and that is happening on a kind of rising curve throughout the First World War, so that the collapses that we're talking about, the breakpoint of 1917, uh, as, you, as you term it, I think that is right. I think 1917 is the year of the breakpoints. But the point is, it's the moment when those societies which simply couldn't sustain the test of the kind of war that they got themselves into in 1914 break with the emergence of the different forms of violence that we were talking about. So in that sense, I would simply see uh, greater continuities. And for example, the question of, ethnic, of, of ethnicity, I mean, I think, I, th I think you're right. I mean, Robert's also right that there are reform plans in Austria-Hungary, there are reform plans in Ottoman Turkey, <coughs> but there are two versions. It's fascinating when you look at the young Turks. One is a liberal version in which they take what you were talking about this morning, the, 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 the notion of the subordinate religious communities that are protected, they try to translate that into a liberal democratic form, and the Armenian nationalists actually initially support the revolution of the Young Turks in 1907-1908. But the opposite version is one informed by social Darwinism, ethnic cleansing, and that's being applied from 1912-1913, and then immediately the First World War breaks out for Turkey in November 1914. In that sense, I see much more of a kind of an evolutionary pattern, if you like, in these dynamics of violence, rather than a radical break in 1917. Gentlemen here in the fourth row, you, you're turning around, yes. Yes, um, my name is Ron Mandel, University of Northampton. 
Uh, I just want to thank the two speakers for very, uh, two interesting talks. Uh, my comment is not meant as a criticism, but it's going to give rise to a question. I found your talks were Eurocentric. Um, and obviously World War I was not, the Great War was not simply about Europe. Uh, so I want to just, just to tease out from both speakers, was there the same kind of political violence in the former Ottoman Empire, within Asia, or was it maybe less pervasive, less intense? Just to tease out some responses to those questions. Okay. Another. Richard. Well, just to follow on that for a moment, if you look at this as a number of separate conflicts, uh, what's, why is the trigger in Europe triggering all of these separate conflicts immediately? How, how do they get linked up so that one spark ignites so many different kinds of things? Okay. In the last row, I think that gentleman has been... Yeah. From a sociological point of view, I'd like to touch upon the um, imagery of war um, expressed in terms of new art forms, cubism, expressionism, futurism, um, official war art. There's a, there's a, there's a sort of etching of, of, of conflict, of violence of, in, in, in the public imagination during the interwar period. Um, you know, the, the influence of cartoons, for example, political cartoons. It's sort of whipping people up. It's stirring people up from a, you know, from a sociological perspective. Okay. John, would you like to... Certainly, yeah. I'll, I'll be brief on the colonial war because I, I tried not to neglect it in, 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 in what I said, and I know in lots of other work that Robert's done, he doesn't neglect it um, either. But uh, as you'll gather, I mean, I tried to present it in, in two forms. First, uh, let, let me just make... Uh, and those two forms are that I think that the, 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 the European powers continue to pursue a kind of classic colonial conflict or game, as it were, the great game, um, during the First World War. And this allows the British and the French, in particular, um, once Ottoman and Turkey comes into the war, to carve up, in the way that they do, the Middle Eastern provinces of Ottoman Turkey, not Anatolia, not the core of Turkey, but the Middle Eastern provinces. And that, of course, is the foundation of the modern um, uh, Middle East. And in other ways, too, um, there's the, there's the re reappropriation of uh, German colonies. So that, that's the kind of great colonial game which is absolutely inherited from the 19th century. Uh, paradoxically, while these countries, Britain and France, I, I mean, they're both empires, but for me they're fighting as nations in Europe, but they have this, of course, this, this, uh, this imperial um, backup. But at the same time, the feedback effect of the war onto the colonies itself is, I think, where we see the violence. And that, that in two regards. One I didn't refer to, but that's where the actual fighting takes place. And in the much more fragile close to subsistence economies of, for example, East Africa, where there's rather brutal war that goes on for four years, we now know that, for instance, if we look at the death rate for European soldiers, it's perhaps somewhere in the order of 30,000, but well over 100,000 African porters, who are the logistics for that war, die. And it's only in 1933 that on the British side any recognition is given to that. And through that, there's a question of what happens to these rather more fragile economies when they're subjected to the needs of the, of the European nations, and it often leads to a kind of to, to, to famines, famines which, which, which occur because of the distortions of the wartime economies as the Europeans are taking cattle and grain and so on out of these areas. And so there's a real economic cost, and there's a kind of feedback effect in terms of, um, which is particularly severe in Africa. But the other feedback effect is political and, ideolo and ideological. It's for those already, those emerging colonial elites with nationalist um, uh, ambitions to say, well, if this language 
particularly the Wilsonian language of democratic self-determination applies to Europe, why wouldn't it apply to us? And the attempt to make that case in 1919 uh, doesn't get very far, uh, but it also produces um, uh, 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 movements of revolt, the Egyptian revolt of 1919, for example, which lead to a savage kind of um, clampdown uh, by the colonial uh, powers. And so I would say that the, the dynamics which ultimately lead to decolonization and more intensive exploit, exploitation of the empires by the Europeans on the one hand, and the emergence of political reactions amongst the colonial elites is already there from the First World War, and indeed the Bolsheviks precisely play on that, because in 1920 they formulate a Marxist and a communist alternative in which colonial liberation is now part of the class um, uh, struggle. Very briefly, Richard, to your question on, on what, what makes it all come together in 1914, well, I think it is, I mean, for me, perhaps in oversimplistic terms, but it seems to me that um, the, the question of an, uh, the emergence of um, uh, uh, national claims formulated in, in, in ethnic terms is deeply disturbing even to the reformers in Austria-Hungary and of course there's the other side as in, as in the Ottoman Empire who aren't reformers who just simply want to repress this possibility and in the crisis, the July crisis 1914, the feeling now is with this much larger Serbia that it's emerged that this poses an existential threat to whatever version of the Austro-Hungarian Empire you want to imagine, and that this therefore justifies going to war. And at that point, what is a regional conflict plugs into the European balance of power and the old operation of the European concert, which always ensures that regional conflicts do not become European conflicts, fails in the July crisis. Finally, very briefly, on uh, art and the war, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the most fascinating questions that, that art and cultural historians uh, pose at the moment about the Great War is what, what, people, what people saw and didn't see at the time of the violence. And it's quite surprising the degree to which, um, in terms of artists um, and photographers and, and art and photography, if one looks at the official artists, war artists in France and, 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 and Britain, for example, how much they, they did show of the violence of war. But it's always framed in a language of national mobilisation or of sacrifice, which somehow justifies it, which validates it. And there are other images which in the post-war period are then stripped of that, which can either be used to incite the kind of violence that Robert and I were talking about. So this is the fascist use that's, that's made of art. If you think of the 1932 fascist exhibition for the 10th anniversary of the March on Rome in Rome, it covers 1914 to 1922, and two-thirds of that exhibition is actually about Italy in the, um, uh, in, in the Great War and, and the violence of that Great War. And meanwhile, you have pacifist images of war, which are now used uh, not to say the sacrifice is terrible but must be borne. It now is turned in that way that I was referring to at the beginning as one of the interpretations of Renoir's film. That's to say the only possible solution to war is a war against war, is ending war. Um, and so the horror of the war is used directly by artists. Do you want me to answer to Would you like to come in on this? Yeah, well, just uh, maybe just a few uh, additional points on the... Um, on the, on the global war, well, I, I certainly take the, the First World War um, very seriously as, as a global war. And I think um, uh, over the last 15 years, a lot has been done to reimagine uh, the First World War as a world war. If we had had this discussion here 20 years ago, uh, I think it would have been slightly different because people sort of imagined the First World War as a conflict between the big three, Britain, France and Germany, on the Western Front, uh, with everyone else relegated to the footnotes. And I think that has changed in a, in a major way. Um, and, uh, but we shouldn't lose a sense of proportions, I think, because, of course, non millions of non-Europeans were involved, 
uh, in that conflict, but most of the fighting and dying occurred in Europe broadly defined. So Europe, for me, certainly includes the Ottoman Empire. Um, another point, well, the spark immediately, I'm not entirely sure that that's true, because in, for some parts of Europe, the, the conflict had already started before 1914. Um, you know, 1914 to 1918, as the major caesuras, only makes sense for a limited number of combatants. Actually, it only makes sense for Germany, Britain, and France, and no one else. Uh, because for everyone else, the war doesn't start in 1914 or doesn't end in, in 1918. So it actually, it, I think that chronological perception um, illustrates how much we are focused on certain combatants uh, at the expense of others. Um, and I think my colleague William Mulligan, I think, has, has done a very good job in, in turning the question, not when does war break out, but when does great power peace end in Europe? And he also, I think, points to uh, the fact that this great power peace, we mustn't forget that the First World War was preceded by one of the longest periods of peace in modern uh, European history, uh, that this great power peace begins to unravel with the Italian um, invasion of Libya and the Dodecanese. So when we talk about, you know, when, when we play this finger-pointing game uh, about you know, who has started the First World War, the Italians usually get off very lightly. And uh, I think this was for him a way of kind of introducing them uh, into that more general debate. Um, and finally, perhaps just very briefly, um, a point that John mentioned earlier in favor of the continuity argument. Of course, you could also argue, and this is just uh, for the sake of argument, my personal counter-argument, that um, the First World War actually stabilizes empires because... Uh, and it also shuts out reform, because up until 1914, all of these uh, ancient empires are involved in discussions about how to reform, how to allow certain minorities to a greater political participation, right? Now, as soon as 1914 occurs, home rule goes out of the window, or at least it's, it's being put on ice. Uh, the debates about elevating the Croats uh, with greater um, autonomy uh, is stopped, or at least deferred until the end of the war, uh, the same certainly occurs in the Ottoman Empire a bit earlier. Uh, as soon as the, the Young Turks starts, they certainly uh, prioritize the Turkic core of the empire. Uh, but up until then, there, there had been a very intense debate about what to do with the, the Arab provinces. And I think that should not be forgotten uh, with the hindsight of what happens during the war uh, to the Armenians. Okay. Thank you. We've got um, David, the gentleman there, and then Donald. And if I could ask you, we've got another 15 minutes, if you could be really quite succinct and brief, because I want to take as many questions as you possibly can, especially from this side. I've neglected this side. Apologies. No, I, I wanted to raise the issue of, of technology, really, and um, that, as you mentioned, I think, John, that the kind of killing is important. Um, the usual estimate is that maybe up to two-thirds of the fatalities on the Western Front were through artillery, um, after 1914, that's largely indirect fire, which means that the people who are firing the gun don't see the people they're killing or firing poison gas at. Um, and if you extend from that, if you look at the war at sea, people, U-boats, once you're into unrestricted submarine warfare, the U-boats may well not see oh, through the periscope the ships are sinking. And the long-range blockade, maybe half a million fatalities in Germany is a cause of that. Um, now, this is all important because it links in with one of the paradoxes you've brought out, which is how is it that so many people came away from these experiences and went back to ordinary family lives. And it's partly because they never saw the people they were killing. 
and this is different from earlier conflicts where there were different kinds of weapon that were much more short range yeah? mm. until the invention of smokeless powder and the quick firing field gun which is the key thing in the 1890s that's, that's the real change um, and in some ways you can see this of course leading on to the second world war yeah? particularly of course bombing of civilians from the air has come in by 1918 one of the things that happens in the second world war and in the holocaust itself is the attempt by the Nazis to distance the killers from the people who they're killing Now, at the other side of this, of course, particularly in the wars after the war that Robert was talking about, there is a lot of face-to-face killing. So, I mean, you have to kind of think of an approach to this that combines the two phenomena, I think, if you're to explain why the First World War is so violent and why this period kind of sets a precedent for what happens later in the 20th century. It's not just the imagination is widened. Things happen and scales of violence are shown to be possible that people previously hadn't imagined. But it's also the technological basis there, which wasn't there a generation before, but had become available in the 10 to 20 years before 1914. Thank you, David. Gentlemen, then the third row. Uh, the interesting thing is that uh, the World War narrative hasn't really changed very much in that it really reflects primarily... England's view of the World War and doesn't really reflect the world, the, 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 the sort of um, view narratives from elsewhere, not just elsewhere in Europe, but also elsewhere uh, in the empire, Britain's empire, great empire. And that's very disturbing in a way because it suggests that uh, the narrative is being owned by, by one set of people. And that surely is wrong, in my view. This is the 21st century, after all. And I think somehow that's... It seems to me you've got to sing... Uh, you've, got to get, you've got to have lots of different types of birds singing, you know. I think this, this song can't be sung with English voices uh, alone. Because, for, I, I, I mean, the, the fact is that in 1905 there was one major event, which was the um, Russia-Japan-Japan war, in which Japan, for the first time, won a major battle against a European power. And that was incredibly important and powerful in suddenly giving um, Asians an idea that somehow Europeans were not the superior people, that in fact they can be overcome. And this was a very powerful symbolic moment in all of Asia. And it certainly energized the uh, Indians into thinking that perhaps there was a there was another way out of this uh, out of this uh, colonial morass. Um, one other point, for example, I'll, I'll give you a Second World War. Uh, we think of the Holocaust and and the violence in the Second World War. We forget that Britain actually uh, committed another type of genocide in which it actually committed genocide against its own allies. I'm talking about Bengal, for example, which is the silent genocide. Up to five million people were deliberately murdered by British people, British soldiers, British army, British state. And Churchill's comment, by the way, on that, if, uh, Churchill, by the way, I'm sorry if, you're, if, you, are, uh, if you feel that I, I shouldn't be talking about Churchill in this way, but, but <laughs> because I think Churchill is regarded as a bit like the queen and queen mother. Uh, in England. 
So I think what, what I'm saying is that, you know, five million Bengalis were murdered in Second World War. And there isn't a single monument. There are lots of books. There are thousands of books about the Burma campaign, about Japanese, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, activities in Burma against the British soldiers there. But there, isn't, there, there is hardly, there is silence there. So what I'm saying is, the, in my view, in the 21st century, somehow we've got to have lots of different birds singing. Not harmoniously. It's not just Germans who are the bad boys. The other thing in the, second, in the, the narrative so far, we've heard primarily the Wilsonian view, worldview. That's come across very, very strongly. In my view, I hadn't realized Wilson's view is liberalism was so powerfully intoxicating in the First World War that it seems to permeate into our 21st sorry, century. Just one, one more short, last point. Can I cut you short? There, There's a, there are a really great number of people who want I, to... Just, just one last point. I think... Oh, okay, I'll stop you. Thank you. <laughs> Donald. Um, you, you, mentioned, you all mentioned many of the events that occurred before the First World War and somehow linked, like the, the Young Turks. Um, is there, what is the connection, if any, between that and the globalization, what I would call the globalization of constitutional democratic change, which takes place in the most diverse societies? I'm thinking of the Mexican Revolution of 1910, the Portuguese Revolution of 1908, the Chinese Revolution of 1911, the Persian Constitutional Revolution of 1906, I mean, all these things are taking place with similar demands, but in widely different societies, and more or less at the same period in time. And I could add the 1905 Russian Revolution. How does that feed in, if at all, towards the First World War? Okay, I'd like to take one or two questions from this side, and then I think you, you kick off. This gentleman here with the beard. Uh, could, you say, could you say a word about uh, Japan, about the influence of the First war, World War on Japan, in particular how it led to uh, the Second World War and the fall of Singapore and all that? Okay. Robert? I don't know. I can, I can start with some. I don't think I'll be able to answer all of them, but maybe John can fill in the Step gap. In. So, uh, for example, I'm, uh, I'm not English, not even British, so I feel... Your criticism applies more to John than it does to me. Um, Excuse me, I I, I work in an Irish institution. (laughs) I'm half Australian. Yeah, I mean, David's point, I think, yeah, of course, I think you're you're right in in some ways, but I think um, the act of killing or being killed is not as anonymous as you suggest in the First World War because, of course, lots of people see the impact of being bombarded, and that's not a very pretty sight. Um, and how that helps us to understand violence in the Second World War, I'm also not sure about, because I think for a long time the Holocaust has been misconceived as a sanitized process, which it really wasn't, because the, it, certainly the majority of people who are killed in the Holocaust are killed in face-to-face shootings. And the, res- the, the, the concentration camps are not so much a response to the brutality of the First World War, but a response by the SS leadership to the increasing brutalization of their own men uh, on the Eastern Front. They realize that if they have these men uh, mass shooting women, children, men of any age, then 
they would be very difficult to reintegrate into German society. So that's how you end up with Auschwitz. But I wouldn't equate that with the Holocaust. Um, and, um, yeah, John, do you want to answer well, something? Okay, yeah, yeah. Very, very, I won't go back over, the, uh, over, the, over the, the, the killing at distance, except that, I mean, I think the, you know, soldiers are acutely aware that they are killing at distance as well as being killed at distance, and, and, and being killed at distance is, is horrible because there's a particular sense of disempowerment about it, which, is, which helps produce the trauma of the First World War. But it, both in the offensives or if you look at the artillery, it's very, very interesting. And the artillery often have a sense of themselves with this powerful mechanical means and explosive means pulverizing the enemy. And they tend to write very differently about the war than the way that the infantry does. But I accept your point about more face-to-face killing. And I think the imagery of the post-war violence is, 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 is somewhat different. Although we shouldn't neglect, I think, the degree to which there's a mix of paramilitary violence formal violence between established armies that's the case in the Russian civil war um, and, uh, and so on um, but the changing technology is, is, is certainly an, an important point the, the, the outside views yes well I mean as, as I just tried on, on two, already on two occasions I and mean, I think of, of, of course it's, it's extraordinarily important um, uh, to do that um, if you ask how conceptually does one do that I think that an interesting notion first developed by Ernst Bloch, but Reinhard Koselik has also um, dealt with it, is the notion of non-simultaneous simultaneity. That's to say that people can have very different um, trajectories of understanding, be coming from different places, but they're nonetheless grouped in a single historical event. In this case, let's say the First World War, the killing of the First World War. So I've tried to look at that in my own work, for example, in the way in which um, Algerian soldiers might experience the Western Front or the invasion in 1914 at exactly the same time as the French do, how they might experience this and write back to their own families um, about it. And I think it's, it, it, it's certainly possible um, uh, to do this. But practically, when you say, you know, many birds must sing, yes, of course, many birds did sing at the time. We were living, people were living in a, in a highly varied world. But, but many of them are also speaking and writing for themselves now. And that brings me to the question of somebody who's asking about Japan. I mean, um, I, I was in Japan in January this year, and Japanese historians are intently, intensely interested in the First World War, working on it themselves, indeed working on Europe, on Britain during the First World War. So I think part of the globalization of the view of the history of the First World War is a globalization of historical activity. And I'm glad to say, not in all sectors, but in many sectors, that is actually happening. If you want a thumbnail a sketch of uh, perhaps of how I understand Japanese historians uh, to see it, certainly for them, in a sense, the First World, their First World War was 1904-1905 and we talked about different ways of chronologizing the trajectories of um, of Europe I think they would see the chronology as going from 1904 or perhaps even 1894 the Sino the Sino Japanese War to 1945 but within that the First World War has a particularly interesting place because the Japanese military losses are very small. It's simply in taking over Tsingtao, the, the, the German concession in um, China. However, they remain, uh, combat, they remain belligerents um, uh, throughout. And there is a sense in which in economic um, and in cultural and political terms, they absolutely mobilize for the First World War, which touches on another theme we haven't evoked, which is neutral powers. And neutral powers also have their great war. It's just in different terms. Now, in the Japanese case, it seems that um, two things happen. They study intensely, as they've done in the 19th century, in the, post-Meiji, in the, in the Meiji period. Um, so they, they have their observers, they have their correspondents, their military observers. They're studying very closely what's happening on the, uh, on the, in, in, in Europe, around uh, the 
the combat in Europe is, is the first thing. Secondly, um, there is this cultural reversal in which the spectre of the um, great European powers slaughtering each other uh, uh, comforts them and gives them a sense that they are no longer um, that they, they resent any, any implication that they might be inferior. But thirdly, and perhaps the most important thing, Russia is taken out of the equation by the Bolshevik Revolution and weakened. And of course, the Japanese have troops in Siberia until 1926. The new potential power is unrivaled is America. From almost from 1914, especially from 1917, because the Japanese reasoning is that the Wilsonian language of liberal democracy and the criticism of empire goes exactly contrary to it, what they want to achieve in East Asia, in what will be the future Great East Asia co-prosperity sphere. And so that whether it's the Pacific or whether it's in China, the sense that um, the United States is the future enemy in a Japan, which is learned about militarization from the Great War itself, is crucial. So I think the argument is cultural and political and economic. Um, very briefly on the constitutional reform, Donald, and I think you're, you're absolutely right, but of course that constitutional reform is sometimes, as Robert says, uh, an attempt to reform empires, modernize empires. Sometimes it's an attempt to uh, construct a new form of, of nation-state um, in advance. And it seems to me that that process gets, it, it gets caught up in the First World War, and it's, it's particularly clear in the case of the, um, of the Ottomans, of the Ottoman Empire. But even if you think of, of Ireland, I mean, Robert's quite right that in one sense um, the First World War stops um, home rule dead in its tracks. On the, on the other hand, it also stops a potential civil war in Ireland, and perhaps had the war only gone on for two years, this mobilisation of Ireland, north and south, nationalist and unionist, for the war might have produced a very different outcome. So it's a kind of intersection, as I would see it, between that process of international sort of liberal constitutional reform and the war, which sometimes completes it and sometimes um, uh, absolutely uh, inverts it. Okay. I'm afraid we're running out of time. There's one question I would uh, like to throw in the, the ring uh, at the end. Um, we were talking about um, inter-ethnic violence post-1918. Um, and, of course, um, if you make the link to today, um, the, the most potent and most dangerous inter-ethnic violence that we're faced with is that between Shia and Sunnis. Um, is there a... What's, what, what's the history of that conflict? Because, of course, post-1918 and the 1920s, that, 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 was, that was not one that was, that was really on the cards. So what happened there? I don't know. You, 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 need, you need to ask a, an expert in the, in the Middle East, which, I, which I'm certainly not. I mean, all, all, all that is clear is that the, uh, the, the, the Ottoman attempt to... I mean, there is talk of the caliphate. It's not an unimportant notion during the First World War. Um, and, of course, there is also the attempt to call, to, to, to declare a jihad, which is done really for instrumental purposes by, right. the, by the Ottoman Turks and supported by the, by the Germans, and doesn't get very far um, at all, I think. But, but what I do think is very interesting is that once the British... I mean, there's this extraordinary moment when the British take, take Jerusalem in 1917, where suddenly they replace Ottoman Turkey as the custodian of some of the key religious sites um, for three religions. And the sense that the British have now again, as part of this traditional imperial game, have taken over as the custodians and can perhaps attempt to use this for imperial purposes, I think is part of the imperial game which continues to be played during the interwar period. But as I said earlier, and in response to that, to that question about colonies, I mean, there is, there is that interaction between Wilsonian ideas which are taken up very seriously by the colonial elites 
the perception by Britain and France that you need to use the empire in new ways in the interwar period, precisely to face what Robert was talking about, the emergence of the new imperial threats from the Soviet Union and from, and from Nazi Germany, uh, creates a very different um, kind of administration of the empire and set of political forces in the interwar period, which then, of course, feed into decolonization. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, both of you. Thanks. <laughs>